Oh, there we go. Perfect. Okay. Hey, hey, um, Matthew 26 is where we are. If you have a Bible, you want to follow along on paper. If you want to follow along um, on a phone or on a tablet, if you're joining us online this morning, we are so glad that you're joining us this morning. Uh, so glad that you took some time out of your day to be here with us um, in spirit and uh, worship God through, through song and through giving and through the study of his word together. Matthew 26 is where we are, and we're going to get you caught up on Matthew 26. Um, if you don't know, we are now at the trial of Jesus, okay? And uh, so Jesus has spent three years teaching, healing, all those great stories we love, right? Um, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, all these miraculous and amazing things. Those are done, and Jesus has, has sat with his disciples, and he washed the feet of his disciples. He washed the feet of Judas. Never missed that. He washed the feet of Judas. He sat and he shared communion together with his, with his disciples and, and broke bread with them. And then he went out to the garden, and he, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays. And, and then Judas shows up. Last week, if you were here, we talked about Judas shows up with um, maybe as many as two thousand people. Uh, just whatever vision you had of Jesus's arrest is honestly probably wrong. It says that there was no less than a whole Roman cohort, which was 600 soldiers clad for war. 600 soldiers show up into a garden to arrest Jesus. Peter, you know, tries to cut the guy's head off, misses, just takes his ear off. Jesus heals him. And now we have Jesus in the middle of the night in front of religious leaders on trial. And um, what we're going to look at today, I, I, just wanna, I just want you to know, what we're going to look at today is like, you're going to have to pay attention and put your thinking brain on because um, what we're looking at in today, it, it looks like a really simple question and a really simple answer. But what Jesus is going to do in this moment is, is declare this profound, world-changing, human history-changing truth that all of our faith is founded on. So, so here's the question, right? He's in front of the religious leaders, the high priest who's, who's kind of, um, if you don't know much about Jewish uh, religion, he's kind of the president of all of the religious leaders, okay? He's, he's the guy in charge. He has a special place in his job every single year to go in and out to the holy of holies or the most holy place because in the temple you had the courtyards and you had several different courtyards and then you would go inside and there was a place called the holy place and then inside the holy place was the most holy place so the holy of holies and he would go in and out of there he was intended to be the mediator who stood most closely to god there's um uh um the, the, the role of a priest is twofold. The role of a priest is to um, be the mediator from God to his people. You remember Moses, right? Moses is up on the mountain and he serves in a priestly role. He's up on the mountain. He gets this word from God. There's a cloud of God's presence all around him. And he comes down from the mountain. You remember this? And his face is shining so bright that they can't really look at him. And he comes and he declares to them, he comes to share to them what God is calling them to and how he's calling them to be a people. And that's one job of the priest. The other job of the priest is to lead the people into the courtroom, into the worship of God. And this guy here is the center of all of that. He is, he's the, the grand poobah. He is, he's the dude, right? 
And so he says this, I adjure you by the living God, which means just like, I demand you make an oath. That's what that means, right? That you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, at first reading, one of the most dangerous things in reading scripture, like, like if you want to start a cult, here's how to start a cult 101, okay? That's what you wanted to know when you came to church today, is how to start a cult, is to take 21st century ideas and implant them into first century world. So, so when we read this, okay, nobody was shocked by this. Did anybody read this and go, oh, I wonder what he's going to say? Anybody? No, 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 because this testimony... This statement that Jesus is going to answer, and, and here's the cheat sheet, he's going to answer in the affirmative. The thing that Jesus is going to answer here um, is not shocking to us. This, this is the center of our faith. Jesus is Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, in fact, uh, I didn't say this during first time, but I mean, that's what my tattoo, if you've ever seen a fish tattoo, a fish symbol on the back of someone's car, it's this statement. It's Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Right? It's that he is the Christ, which another word, this is a Greek rendering of the same word, which in the Hebrew is the word Messiah. Right? Or if you go back in even further into Messiah, it's the anointed one. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. The reason that this was problematic for a first century audience is because here, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is is one, is one. How, how can you be the son of God and there be one? The, the, the Jews had great hopes of what the Messiah was gonna look like. They were waiting, they were anticipating, they were hoping, they were pleading, there were people that gave their life, trying to, like literally, not just like, I'm gonna give my life to a cause, like literally would die, hoping that in their death, they would usher in the Messiah, the Christ to come. There was great hope in Jesus' day for this. In fact, around Jesus' time, there were dozens and dozens of other men who came and claimed that they were the Christ. But for those religious leaders, for the Jews of the day, for all those other that claimed to be the Christ, what they saw themselves as was the next iteration of the King David. Did, did, did you know um, King David had a daddy and a mommy? Did you know that? And King David's daddy and mommy wasn't God. In Jewish thought in the first century, there was not a single person that imagined, outside of Jesus, that the Messiah would actually be God himself. One of the most profound, beautiful, shocking truths of the Christian faith that sets it apart from every other faith in the world or that man has ever uttered or imagined is not that there is a way to be saved or find freedom, but that that pathway comes because God himself came to redeem and to save us. So this question here is this incredibly loaded question because if Jesus says no, Right? If Jesus says no, then his whole ministry is just kind of like, well, then what are you doing here? What are you wasting our time for? But if Jesus says yes, he is claiming to not only be a man, the Messiah, the Christ, a son of David. In fact, this is the title that Jesus often uses. It's um, uh, uh, an allusion to Daniel 7 that we're going to look at a little bit later, that he's the son of man. Not only is he the son of man, but he is the son of God. There's a lady um, who wrote in the journal of Biblical Literature, and this is what she said in thinking about how first century Jews would have heard this question. 
She said, um, after this really long essay she wrote, we should conclude that the use of the Son of God for the Messiah was not customary in Jewish thought at the time of Jesus. It was on nobody's mind. The, the religious leader is setting Jesus up for a failure because how in the world could he be the Messiah and be God himself? And in fact, when Jesus answers this question, you know, you know what they do? It says that beginning with the high priest, they tore their clothes now, it would be very difficult in our day with the way we make our clothes for us to tear our clothes. It's just different material and all that kind of stuff. But in the ancient Near East, tearing your clothes or rending your clothes was a normal tradition in mourning. But the thing that's really interesting about them tearing their clothes is that the Jewish high priest, the high priest who asked this question, who is the one who begins with the tearing of his clothes, he is actually prohibited from tearing his clothes. Um, in, in Jewish teaching, in Jewish custom, uh, if, if someone dies that was near you, you would tear your clothes. If, if, if your spouse died, if a child died, you would tear your clothes. And, and if you think about it, it's like a really beautiful kind of cathartic experience in our pain. It was an image, right? When you tear your clothes, it's an image of what you're feeling inside. Have you felt that kind of pain? Right? Have you felt that kind of loss that just like feels like everything inside of you is like crushed and torn and ripped apart all at the same time? And they would take their clothes and they would demonstrate that same kind of thing that they felt inside. The high priest was prohibited from tearing his clothes. Even if a spouse or child died, he could not tear his clothes except in one instance. And that was when he was in the presence of blasphemy because it was said to hear blasphemy was more painful than to lose a spouse. And so when Jesus responds and he answers and he tells them, yes, when he answers this question of if he's the Messiah and the Son of God, there is such pain and shock and agony. This is such a controversial thing that Jesus says. It's so shocking and otherworldly that, that the religious leaders in the day, ah! Right? Look what Jesus says. He says this, Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Now you can read this a couple different ways. And a lot of times when you read this, um, you don't get intonation when you, that's the problem with texting people, anything serious. Anybody have that problem in life, right? You text people, you send someone an email, you're like, oh, that's not how I meant to say it, right? We, we can read this very passively from Jesus, like Jesus saying, you said it, right? But um, it's more akin, it's a phrase that's more akin to like saying like, um, saying this, you took the words right out of my mouth, right? That's kind of what he's saying right here. In fact, Mark, um, when Mark records a story, Mark is known for his brevity, right? Mark is, it's the shortest gospel. Jesus rarely has any meaningful speeches, right? Like the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plains, um, these great speeches of Jesus all come from the book of Matthew. Mark, when he tells them, he's like, Jesus told him to do good stuff. Right, like that's that's because Mark is like an ADD thirteen, ADD sixteen year old when he's writing the Gospel of Mark, right? And so this is how Mark records it. I, I love this. This he says this, and Jesus said, "Yep." Oh, sorry, that was the message version. This one here, he says, "I am." Right? I am. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of David? Are you the one that we've been waiting for that's going to restore the kingdom? Who's going to boot out the Romans? Who's going to relieve us from the oppression and brokenness of this world? Um, and God himself? Yep. But Jesus doesn't just 
end there with that statement. He, he goes on. Um, oh, sorry, this is Philippians. This is that statement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is the center of our faith. It is, what, it is what makes the Christian faith unique, is that Jesus, our Messiah, is our Savior and our Lord, our God, that he is God himself. Philippians, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, and he says this, Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, right, that's, that's him saying he is God. He's the Son of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here's what Paul's saying. Um, we're so busted we can't even fathom or figure out how to find our way towards God. That God says, this is, God says, be holy as I'm holy. Be perfect just as I'm perfect. We can sit there and go, duh, I don't know. Didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. Isn't that like a great sales pitch for following Jesus? Um, this word can rightly, and some of your translations might use the word slave, um, Come follow Jesus. Be a slave. Woo! And being made in the likeness of men. See that? Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus declares, he affirms this world-altering truth, this humanity-changing reality that he is the Messiah we've hoped for but he is also God himself. Jesus, look back again at his answers. It goes on, he says, nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see. Now, here's an important little detail. Um, when you're reading the Bible, any time that there's anything irregular in the way that they format the text, right? Um, if it's not in paragraphs with like, the number at the beginning and a period at the end. The, the, the editors are trying to tell you something, right? If you open a section of scripture and it's indented all funky, you, you know, you've seen that where it's indented? They're trying to tell you something, that that, that text is different, that there's something going on there. Um, if they put like a little asterisk, right? Or, or a little sub-note deal thing. They're trying to tell you something. If they underline something, if you see the word Lord and it's all in capital letters, they're trying to tell you something. They're trying to tell you that there's something in that text that you can't see in the English, but there's something going on there. And here in this translation and probably in a translation you use, if you see something that's in all caps, what it's telling you is that they believe that it is a direct quote from another section of Scripture. You'll see this all the time. Now, if you look for it, when you open your Bible, you'll see it all the time, especially with Jesus. He'll quote all the time, and you'll see the things in all text. So look, 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 look at this, okay? And is not capitalized. So, so what we know, just looking at this one verse here, is that Jesus is actually quoting two different passages from Scripture, from the Old Testament, from the Jewish Scriptures, what we also need to know before we look at the passages he's, he's quoting is in Jewish thought, um, in Jewish culture in Jesus' day, they knew Scripture. Like, like, they knew Scripture. Like, some of you think that you've memorized some Bible verses. And some of you are a little impressed with yourself, or maybe you're going to impress someone because, you know, like, if I tell you to turn to Obadiah, you can be like, oh, I know where Obadiah is, Right? Or if I tell you, you know, hey, we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians or First Hesitation 7, 6, you're like, I know what that is, right? You know what, right? You think you, 
here's how the Jews would know their Bible. In Jesus' day, if you were a good Jew and you grew up in the Jewish education, here's how they would know their Bible. If a rabbi was quoting scripture, they wouldn't tell you. Today, we're going to be looking at Exodus 7, right? They wouldn't tell you that. You know what they'd start doing? They just start reciting the scriptures. And then at any point, they wouldn't tell you where they were in the Old Testament. And if you picked up your Bible, the Old Testament is most of it. They wouldn't tell you where they're at. And they would expect, if you were a good Jew, that they could stop and point at you and you would keep reciting it from right there. That's how they knew their scriptures, right? And so there's a little shorthand that happens in, in Jewish culture. We see it actually when Jesus is hanging on the cross. Remember when Jesus is hanging on the cross? Matthew records this. And he, and he says this, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You remember that, right? And, and a lot of times people are like, whoa, well that's, well, that's really weird. But you have to remember, we, ha we haven't said this for a long time. If you're new here, don't get nervous when we say this, because this is true, okay? Um, how many of you remember this? Matthew is a? And he's writing to a bunch of? Jews. So they knew the scriptures. A lot of historians and a lot of theologians and a lot of commentators actually believe that when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That that's not where he stopped. That he actually recited the whole psalm. And if you read the psalm, it's about God's faithfulness. It's about God's endurance, about God never abandoning him. But it begins with those words. And so when Matthew records it, he just begins with the first verse of it because he expects, as a good Jew, that you know the rest right? Same thing's happening here. Jesus recites the beginning of Psalm 110. And if we're going to understand the implications of what Jesus is saying and the, the, the like really like uh, um, confrontational thing that Jesus is doing, we got to dig into Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. So Psalm 110 says this. This was Psalm 110 verse 1 and then I skip down to verse 4 if you're following along in your Bible. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we don't have time to get into this whole Melchizedek thing, but, but look at this. You are a priest forever, or you are an eternal priest. You, you are a priest whose reign does not end. That's okay, so... Be with me in the room. Imagine this moment. Middle of the night. High priest has been woken up. That, well, I mean, he was probably waiting because he knew that they're going to arrest him. Comes maybe hundreds of people coming to the courtyard of where he lives. And, and there's all these religious leaders standing in front of him. And he says, you tell me, I'm the high priest. I'm the high priest. I'm, right? Uh, anybody in that movie? I'm the captain now. Right? Anybody seen that movie? No? Okay. Anyways, uh, it's a funny reference in my mind. Um, <laughs> uh, right? I'm the high priest. You tell me now. By God, I demand you tell me, right? And what does Jesus say? He says, he says um, you, you may be the high priest this year. I'm a priest forever. <laughs> what now? Right? You may be the high priest that's been elected by other people who are around you. You may be holding up this institution that you think has great power and influence and, and has made you extremely wealthy, but, but I've been declared by God the high priest for all people for eternity. Scripture says, it tells us in the book of Hebrews that 
The priests would go in and out year after year, offering sacrifices over and over and over and over again. But Jesus offers a sacrifice once for all time. The hope of our faith is that the single sacrifice of Christ, his life for ours, was sufficient for all time. That in the same way that the priest's job was to speak and bring the word of God and the goodness and the presence of God to the people of God and to invite the people of God into the presence of God that scripture tells us that because of our great high priest that we can walk with confidence into the throne room of God that only, only because of the perfect and complete sacrifice of Jesus can we have hope and can we have life. Jesus says this while bound ready to be executed, that this gift will establish him once for all time. It's important, this word right here, sit. It says this in Hebrews. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of God. I've been thinking about what we're gonna do after the book of Matthew. We might just go into the book of Hebrews because it's like, it's as Jewish as the book of Matthew is, and it'd be good. It says this elsewhere in Hebrews. Jesus became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation because he is our eternal high priest, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And last in Hebrews 10, it says this. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice. Think of the monotony of that for years, for decades, for hundreds of years, for generation after generation, the high priest would come in every day and he would offer sacrifices again. And the next day he'd come in and he'd offer more sacrifices for that day. And he'd come and he'd offer more sacrifices for that day. But he being Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. That's um, Psalm 110. We just saw that, right? God tells him to sit, waiting for that, from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Here's the reason that this is so beautiful. And he tells him to sit over and over again. It's emphasized the high priest sitting because the only time the high priest would sit is when the job was done. And the declaration, the good news of Jesus is that he has offered a sacrifice so that the job is done. That this is what Jesus stands in front of these, these people that are on trial. He said, man, man, it's about, you're gonna see. What you're gonna see from this point on, what you're gonna see is you're gonna see me sitting, waiting to prop my feet up. Because it's finished. The good news of the hope of our salvation, the message we proclaim is, is Paul says it this way. Is Christ and him crucified. That's the only message we have, that he is a perfect, good high priest that any one of us for all time, for all of humanity can find hope and life and forgiveness, not because of your goodness or because of what you've accomplished or because of how moral you are, or because of how kind you are, but because once for all time, our high priest offered himself perfectly and completely and then sat down because the job has been completed. So Jesus says this, two parts, right? Son of man sitting at the right hand of the power. And it says this, coming on the clouds of heaven. This is Daniel 7. Now, um, if all you know about the book of Daniel 
is Daniel in the lion's den. You have not read the book of Daniel, right? The book of Daniel is, um, uh, can I say this as a pastor? The book of Daniel is weird, okay? Um, have you read the book of Daniel? Like it's, like there's, it's, it's apocalyptic, right? It's, it's intense. It's this very vibrant, aggressive imagery. And Daniel 7 tells the story, right? Daniel's having this vision and he says, um, I saw four beasts, right? And you know, in Jewish cultures, a lot of ancient cultures, um, numbers mean something, right? The numbers are important. And so four actually has the symbol, has the meaning of all of the earth, um, you read this a lot. You see this in, in Psalms or in Proverbs or in the book of Job right? because you'll hear the four corners of the earth, right? Now, for us, we do the four directions, north, east, south, west, right? But, but when you see the number four, so when it says that there are these four beasts, these evil beasts that dominate, right? It's to say that there are these evil powers that dominate all of creation, right? And one of them, it says the fourth one is different than all the rest. And I'm telling you, okay, um, Book Daniel, it gets weird, okay? Um, the fourth one has 10 horns, okay? He's got 10 horns, and then another like baby horn shows up, like half horn. And that half horn has a bunch of eyeballs on it. And then that half horn with a bunch of eyeballs rips out three of the ten horns. It's weird, okay? But then it says that God shows up and he crushes them. He, he smashes them, tears them apart, destroys them, and then he throws them on the fire and he consumes them and burns them up. And it says this. This is what Jesus is quoting. I kept looking in the night vision and behold with clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. This is the title that Jesus takes most often because he's alluding to all of this of Daniel. One like a son of man was coming and he came to the ancient of days. This is another word that, that Daniel uses all the time to speak of God himself, the father. And he was presented before him. And, and then look at this. This is so good. This is so good. Okay. Um, and to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, now we're going to get back to this. this is, Jesus is, is talking about that he's the rightful king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. But here's a little uh, detail you, you probably never noticed. Um, the book of Matthew ends with the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, Jesus says, um, he says this, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Therefore, go baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Here, look, 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 look. You know what Jesus is doing in the Great Commission? He's inviting us to be a part of what God is going to accomplish. Look at this. Jesus says this, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Look at what Daniel 7 says. And him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, that all people, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one, which will not 
be destroyed. The invitation of the Great Commission is not just to make disciples, but it's to be about the mission of God that God is establishing and restoring and redeeming. All the way back from Daniel 7, there was a hope amongst the people that God would establish his kingdom and his reign and his power. And he, in the Great Commission, is inviting us in Monmouth, Oregon. He's inviting us to be a part of establishing his eternal kingdom. What Jesus says to the religious leaders is, is um, you may arrest me, you may murder me, but I am the great, good high priest by which life comes, by which a pathway to Jesus, a pathway to life comes. I am the one that brings forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration for all time, but not just that. I am the king who sits on the throne. I'm the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Church, this is the only message we have. This is, this is all we have. Philippians, Paul writes later to the church of Philippi. And he says this, speaking to Jesus, for this reason also, God highly exalted him, right? He, he, he placed him on a throne. He had him sit as the good high priest and bestowed a name on him, the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, right? Does this sound like Daniel 7? Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is king, that he has dominion, that he has power, that he has preeminence, that he has significance and purpose and, and, and uh, a position above everything to the glory of God our Father. This last week, um, I had an opportunity to go hang out with some pastor friends of mine. We, we got away and um, spent some time together talking and, and processing life and, and praying. And then, you know, if I'm going to be honest, spending more time eating um, was a very high priority uh, objective for us. And we golfed because we're pastors. Not good, not good, not good. Not good golf, um, but we golfed. And I was telling him about this weekend coming. We were, we were talking about it, and I knew, you know, there's going to be this 10-year thing. And, and one, of the guys said, um, one of the guys said, oh, oh, you know what you should preach? You know what your sermon should be? It should be 10 lessons I learned in 10 years. And I said, that would be really stupid. <laughs> like, my 10 lessons would be like, don't electrocute Jared. He doesn't like it. For those of you who don't know, Jared is uh, our sound guy back there. He's bald. When we first met, he had hair. It turns out repeat exposure to high voltage will kill your hair follicles. <laughs> right? Be things like, uh, don't stand on a hollow core door 25 feet up in the air. Anybody here for Cannonball 10 years ago? What you didn't know is that that diving board was Mark Powell's uh, 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 closet door, just hanging out up there, right? It'd be a lot of dumb things. Here's, here's, here's the point. If after 10 years, if after 20 years, after 30 years, if all you get out of this place is some fun Sundays, some fun events, some fun things that happen, some, some quirky videos we made, some funny things that happen, and 10 lessons we will have failed. If all you do is get a little bit of wisdom on how to have a better marriage or to raise better kids, we will have failed. 
Because you see, church, the only message we have is, as Paul said, Christ and him crucified. That he is our Messiah, our Savior, our perfect high priest, and that he is God himself, seated on a throne, having dominion over all creation, and he is worthy of every ounce of our being. So may that be true of us.